You know, it was some, something I never saw coming. And I believe that a lot of times in life, that some of the greatest blessings are things you don't see coming. And it was a really painful transition. A lot of times in life, the transitions are extremely painful as well. Welcome what up? to the Habits of the Few. What we got for them? Where we discuss habits, rituals, and mindset tactics that you can use to reach your version of success. Yeah. And now, here's your host, Mona Bolte. What, what was it that made you, I guess, transpire going from a professional soccer player to becoming a pastor that has influenced thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people directly or indirectly, because you never know how many people you influence indirectly. Yeah, thanks, Mo. You know, it was some, something I never saw coming. And I believe that a lot of times in life that some of the greatest blessings are things you don't see coming. And it was a really painful transition. A lot of times in life, the transitions are extremely painful as well. And ever since I was three years old, I grew up on the University of Minnesota campus, loved sports. That was my passion. I told my parents when I was that age in preschool that I wanted to be a professional athlete. So that was my dream, and I chased it hard. And sometimes in life, it's going one way, and then it's over, and you can't keep going that way, and you've got to go a different way. Now, sometimes you plan that out, and you get to shift and move into your passion, and it's a great thing. But I loved sports. I was a you know goalkeeper that played overseas. You got to be a little crazy to be a goalkeeper, but I loved everything about it. And then I had a, a well, it was just a tragedy. I, in Africa, I took an anti-malaria medication as prescribed weekly, and it built up toxic levels in my system. And my system, after many months, started to shut down. I had sweats and chills, migraine headaches, which I never have, sensitive to light or noise. And then I had uh, double vision. Problems with my heart included tachycardia, racing heartbeat, 160 beats a minute, sitting still. That happened frequently. Also, atrial flutters, another pretty serious abnormality. And then with my rhythm, it was skipping beats, heart murmur, and I had pain in the left side of my chest during the day, during the night. It's hard to sleep because my left side of my chest was so sore and my heart was beating so hard. And the physicians and cardiologists didn't know if I was going to live or not. I was fighting for my life for a year. And then also the intensity of... Uh, all the emotional effects and side effects of the drug. So that included some depression, suicidal thoughts came in, uh, also anxiety, panic attacks. It was like before this, I was a professional athlete in my right mind, even keel. And now I was on the brink physically. I was on the brink emotionally in terms of my mental health. I just felt like, am I going to lose my mind? And then crazy dreams. My mind was doing Again, it's like a bad drug overdose. Like if you turn on the lights in the room, I'm thinking clearly. And then if you turn off the lights, my mind would start imagining things, taking me down different scenarios. And I was just trying to keep my sanity in all of it. Uh, it took me a year before I could even get behind the wheel and drive again. And I was so sensitive to any stimulation. And that's how taxed my system was. And it really took 10 years to fully recover. So I never saw in the middle of that, any, you know, anything in my future that would be linked to being a pastor. And, and also, I should add, I didn't grow up with religion. I didn't grow up reading the Bible, going to church, Jesus. I had no interest, didn't think God existed. And that changed when I went to Dartmouth College on the East Coast. And it was the first time introduction to religion class. I was just really curious. And Mo, I think we've got some real similarities here. You know, I was really curious about the religions of the world. And I had never read text before. I'd never asked questions before. And I was like, what's out there? I couldn't figure out why if in my life I had at that time, you know, Ivy League titles, 
goalkeeping's going well, academics are going well, solid school, friends, parties, like all my boxes were checked. And I'm like, why does it feel like I'm still missing something on the inside? Why do I not feel happier? Why does it feel like there's an emptiness there? And I didn't think, oh, it's probably God. But I just kept asking questions. I asked hundreds of questions. I, it was the first Christian that I really met. His name was Mike on the track team. And I bombarded him. He was patient. He was easygoing. And he just kept giving me a little bit at a time, no pressure. But then eventually my sophomore year, I realized what stood out to me is that uh, it's not religion. It's not trying to be good enough and performance. And my whole life was performance. I mean, achievement in school, achievements on the athletic field. And, you know, ever since I was seven years old, my parents got divorced. I just poured myself into achievement. And I realized then that this thing with God, it's not going to be achieved. And I'm never going to be 100. I'm never going to be perfect. So then this concept, grace, an undeserved gift. And, you know, I realize there's people from many backgrounds here, my own family, uh, 31 flavors, Baskin Robbins, that kind of sums up my family spiritually. I mean, we have Jewish, rabbi, atheist, agnostic, Catholic, ex-Catholic, just a full range. And I had to make my own decision and everyone has to make their own. And I respect uh, uh, everyone making their own decision. But for me, I decided to put my trust in Jesus and that satisfaction was finally there in my life. So that relationship was new with God, but I never thought I'd become a pastor. And I, I certainly knew it wasn't popular with my family when I put my trust in Jesus. And if I was ever going to be a pastor, that certainly wouldn't be uh, applauded. So there was some tension there, but really I was fighting for my life for that year and I just knew, okay, soccer's probably over. And that was crushing. And, you know, this is a time in my life where so many habits, so many shifts in my mindset, my habits, uh, my identity, this was all changing. And even things like grieving were new to me. And so there was a lot of shifts happening. I, I believe, I'll just say this, I believe some of the best stuff in life happens in the worst situations. And so if you're listening today and you feel like you're stuck, you feel like, you're just going through the motions or you feel like you're searching, man, that hunger, that pain, the pain points often drive us forward. And uh, C.S. Lewis said, you know, pain is like the megaphone that rouses a deaf world. So just don't lose hope. Don't drift into despair. Sometimes the pain is part of the process to take you where ultimately you're going to go and you're going to find that fulfillment. Hallelujah, man. That is, uh, it's a lot to take in. I, I came out and I figured, man, this is uh, no, 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 no. I, I, let's just dive in. And I came out with um, full speed. There we go. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the authenticity and the transparency behind everything. So let's let's kind of go back a little bit. So I wanted to ask, were you now you're currently married, correct? Family, yeah, kids, the whole bit. That's right. Four kids, three biological, one adopted. Love all my kids and uh, so grateful for all of them. Three boys and a girl. She's pretty tough. And uh, also the boy we adopted is, is African-American. So just a sweet time. I love being at home. Love being with my family. Awesome. I love it. When you're going through this challenging time, um, when you're getting these malaria, uh, 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 well, what is it? The antibiotics? Yeah, the side effects, it was called larium. Mefloquine is the drug. And yeah, all the side effects kicked in after many months. Were you the only person that actually got any of those side effects? You know, it's actually a very controversial drug. And there's been some really terrible tragedies. Some people have taken their life. Some people kind of in a vegetative state. I was supposed to keep taking the medication after I returned to America because I was getting sick in Africa. The doctors didn't know what it was. They saw my health declining. They sent me back to the U.S., 
And we paid out of pocket, went to Stanford. That was the first physician that listed 10 things. And one of them was the drug. And I just sensed, I knew it, like, that's it. That's what's going on. And so the physician said, keep taking the drug for another month because they didn't want me to get malaria on top of this. Malaria can be latent and then show up later. And so you've got to keep taking the drug for another month. And I told the physicians, no, they all said, you've got to take it. I said, I'm not going to take it. And man, sometimes you got to listen to your own body. That took Amen. a lot of courage. That was a prayerful decision too. I was like, God, just show me, please tell me what to do. And I told the physicians, I won't take it. Well, we had my blood sent to the center of disease control and they confirmed toxicity, uh, really, really serious levels of the drug in my system. And it probably saved my life that I said no to the physicians there. And I'm so thankful because another month of that drug just could have put me over the top. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's, that's something that is so important is to A, put it up to whatever it is you believe in, whether it be God, the universe, faith, whatever the case may be, but that, that, that is so huge. And then to actually listen to your own body, to, mm -hmm. to go with your gut instinct, to understand that, listen, you're, you're not me. You don't know what I'm feeling. And I feel like this is the thing that's, that's causing it because nine times out of 10, doctors are wrong in my personal experience and experience with, with family members and my wife. We've, I can't tell you how many times we went from one doctor to the next to get multiple opinions. And I'm just like, finally, someone that actually gives us some sort of sense. Mm -hmm. But that, that's, that's really, really important. And the fact that you were able to recognize that is huge. How was the relationship? The reason why I ask this question is, is twofold. One, because I know what kind of a strain it could put on you physiologically and physically, as well as emotionally. So how is this affecting your marriage, if you don't mind I, me asking? Right. No. And, and actually, it all came while I was single. And then I met Lori later. So Got she okay. you know, met me in that recovery, 10-year recovery process. But uh, initially, I was single. And uh, you're right. I mean, you've got all the people around you, friends, family. You know, later, Lori's helped me. She's part of the healing process. And I'm so grateful for her, but that first wave, I was there single. Got it. And, and you said it took 10 years. Yeah. 10 yep. years of recovery from this drug essentially. Yes. And that is in different regards too. you know, in terms of the rhythm of my heart, I still had the episodes of the racing heart. I still had the pain. I still had the skip beats that, that lasted that entire duration in terms of just my energy. Uh, you know, I was able to go to school and I figured, okay, I'm going to go back to school because that's low energy physically, not as taxing. Cause I tried, like I tried to work and I would just get sick and I couldn't physically handle it. And so I went to school for those four years. And during those four years, one of the guys in my dorm, uh, his nickname for me was limp biscuit. You know, <laughs> you think of the van, but yeah. not a real compliment, but it was like, I was just trying to make it through and stay healthy. And that was just academic with school. So there was a lot of stuff, my vision. I mean, there's just a lot of symptoms that didn't heal. And what was interesting is that the doctors really had no, um, in terms of a prognosis, they couldn't say anything about my recovery. And, you know, when you think about those different dynamics, first of all, it was a prescription that was supposed to protect me, but it was actually destroying my life. And man, that's a theme that I think a lot of people can relate to if sadly, if you've had parents, I mean, the role of a parent is to protect, but maybe your parents said things that were verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, even physically or sexually abusive. And a lot of kids have suffered. Parents are supposed to protect or maybe a boss. 
you know, there's a lot of different roles where there's supposed to be a protection role. And then when that turns against you, you're scrambling. And so that was with the drug. And then I went to the doctors who then gave me advice that was, you know, actually going to kill me again, you know, and, and so I had to say no there. And then they just couldn't do anything to help. And they didn't have answers. And that led me searching, you know, I think that's part of why I looked up because humanly speaking, technologically speaking, medically speaking, there was nothing they could do. I could go to them to treat my symptoms, but there was no cure. And uh, you know, one thing that was interesting is after the drug had started to move through my system, it has a half-life of a month. I went to a homeopathic doctor with some, uh, and it was basically to try to get rid of toxicity. And when I started to take uh, what, was, what was given to me there, the drug just went from probably my liver back into my body and the symptoms started to increase. And I was like, well, I can't handle that. So my, my body, I didn't want to go back to all those old symptoms. And so I had to let my body work the drug out over the course of really, I think those 10 years that the symptoms just slowly, and it's not all at once, but it's like, okay, I have less episodes. Okay. They're less often. They're less often. And it just kind of kept fading like a sunset. Uh, and eventually I really got my strength back and, and I just didn't know. And doctors didn't have answers. And so it was a real journey that tested me to the core. And uh, you just can't um, make that stuff up. I mean, it's brutal, but then also you find that there's some things in life, uh, Mo, that get you through one season, but they're not going to get you through the next. And, yep. and, and what I mean by that is growing up, you know, I didn't cry a lot, didn't let my guard down. My approach to challenges was just you try harder, you get better, and then you perform. And so, you know, whether that's school, academics, if it's things I learned, and that is a good, I mean, it's good to have perseverance. We, I'm a lifelong learner, so I'm always learning. But I'm telling you, just trying harder and being stoic is not going to get you through some stuff. And I had to learn how to grieve, to let my guard down. I had to let how to let people in to some of my pain and share that I had to, instead of just praying a prayer that's intellectual or theological, I had to pour my heart out to God and give him the burdens because I couldn't carry them myself. They were too big. And so there was a lot of things in terms of my coping and some of those habits. Here's some more habits. Uh, I started to write down 10 things a day that I could be thankful for because I lost so much that it would be so easy to focus on what I don't have anymore. You, You know, it's good to grieve, but you can't be consumed by what you don't have and consumed by your loss. And so I had to write down 10 things just to say thankful and the power of gratitude. And, and that was a new habit for me. I had to chart out a uh, mo on my wall. I charted out for the year how many minutes I could walk because it, when it's long-term and if it's chronic, you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. You feel like your wheels are just spinning in the mud. And I had to chart out, okay, I can now walk 20 minutes. I couldn't do that. Uh, three months ago. And you know what the heart monitor on to check my heart rate. Like now I can walk 20 minutes and my heart doesn't go too fast. Okay. This is progress. And so some of those habits were, were so significant and in my identity really shifted without even realizing it. My identity was in my performance. And I, I want to tell anyone who's listening, who you are is more important than what you do and in who you are is is where your identity is not in what you do because my identity was linked to soccer my health career you know popularity uh achievement awards grades it was linked to all those things and when they were gone i was wrestling with well who am i if those aren't here 
Now I couldn't just try to go back and live in glory days in the past. It's like, who am I? And that's where I made the shift. And the shift for me was, and you know, again, individual decisions, but for me, it's like, God will always be here and his love will always be here. So that's where I'm going to drop my anchor. And that was a different foundation. That foundation right there, my life started to rebuild. And I felt like my house had crashed. It's like a house on the sand. And I, like, I wanted a house on the rock that would stand. And so that identity was new. Habits, uh, new ways of coping with pain were new. Uh, mindset shifts. There was like a rebuilding. But uh, overall, it was extremely painful. And it's easy to kind of summarize it. But it's not like it's just linear progress and growth. And it's not like, oh, it's just principles and pleasant. It, it's more like this wrestling and it's some steps forward, it's some steps back, it's trying to figure some stuff out. And uh, at the same time, it's, it's, it's glorious what's happening, but it's in the fire of the trial. It's like the gold's refined in the fire and the dross gets burned off. And, and it's like, uh, it, it's the temperature's hot. You know, I, first of all, I applaud you for that. And, and, and I don't want to overlook one specific thing. So you, you dealt with a lot of physical pain, physical trauma that you had to endure for, for almost a decade. Yeah. Um, there's this quote that really sticks with me. It says, the pain will leave you once it is finished teaching you. Hmm. And we often forget that pain isn't always physical. Within that physical pain, being able to have to re-identify who you are what you're going to do now and essentially build this new version of you. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. We often disregard the psychological pain that comes with physical pain. Right. Yeah. Yep. You were crushed when soccer was done. So yeah. like what outside of like the, the, the regular habits of just because you were a disciplined person initially, right. Like what did you have to do in terms of like, okay, I, I need mm -hmm. to be able to escape Mm -hmm. this this aspect of negativity yeah stigma that is just hanging over me yep and how were you able to achieve that how what were some of the practical things that you had to do because it is a grind it's a consistent yes. grind in order yes. to get over that it's not like one day you wake up hey i'm gonna be awesome and That's then you're right. awesome yep yep that's so true. Good insights. You know, as an athlete, so much was physical and there was the training in my craft. I mean, there was constant kicks so that my distance, my distribution was solid as a goalkeeper. You know, there was all the nutrition in college that I learned about and was so helpful and trying to, you know, you want your body to just be at a peak level of performance. And there's the weightlifting, you know, there's the sprints, there's my technique and diving and catching. And that's what you pour yourself into. And what's helpful is that later in life, and, you know, for athletes, when your body can't perform at a, a top level, then your livelihood's going to change, you got to have a second career. And uh, probably a lot of listeners are maybe considering or have shifted from one career to another, and there's a big learning curve. Uh, so for me, that discipline, and I think the military produces some similar benefits, is that you get that discipline, and you know what that devotion is like, and you know how to build those habits. And, and that characterized my life, you know, in terms of my athletics. But in this recovery, the major battle was between my ears. And it's how do you handle the thoughts, the self-talk? Uh, for me, uh, just given some examples, it's like those suicidal thoughts that I'd never have before. And they'd be random and they'd just pop in. And you're just like a, a wave of depression or a suicidal thought would come in. 
And the battle for me was that I can't control the first thought that comes in. And, and that's true in life. Like you can think of some terrible things during the day. And the first thought that comes in, you can't always control, like it's just there. But what you get to decide is what you do with it. And you can either harbor it, entertain it, uh, take it seriously, dwell in it, or you can reject it. And I had to reject those thoughts. And I had to say, no, I'd have no need to do that. I am loved <laughs> and uh, I am secure. I'm not going to end my life. And, and so I reject that thought. And then I intentionally bring in some new thoughts. And, and that's one of the great things, again, but, but between our ears is we can be intentional. So what is true? What is right? What is good? What is pure? You know, those are the thoughts I'm going to put in. And, you know, one practice for me that I'd never done before was I started to take a couple Bible verses and just memorize them. And they'd be just kind of my go-tos. So when the nastiest thought came in, I would just hit reject and then insert that really solid thought, you know, that's a thought that's good, the thought that's encouraging, a thought that's going to move me forward. And I'd say it out loud, I'd write it down, I'd memorize it. So I had something that I was ready for that mental battle to uh, apply. And it was powerful. It was powerful. I was trying to keep my mind out of the ditch. Like uh, mentally, like if you picture a car going down the road, mentally for me, man, it felt like about every 40 feet, my car was tempted to go into the ditch. You know, the alignment was so far off that it would just want to go into the ditch, want to go into the ditch. And those thoughts, whether it's, you know, self-talk that you're worthless, that you'll never succeed, you'll never make it, or it's voices, like maybe people have criticized you and you give those critics too much power, uh, lies, you know, in the culture, those thoughts, we get bombarded and, and you've got to you know, as you're going down that road, stay out of that ditch and just keep rejecting those thoughts. And then, you know, how you talk to yourself is important. Uh, the thoughts you bring in are important. Uh, the quotes, the things you memorize. And uh, for me too, it's like, I wanted to hear from heaven. I, I think when it comes to love, self-love is really important and really good. And then we need love from other people. We can't just live in isolation. And then I needed love from above and I needed all three. And part of that was in my thoughts, just realizing that that is true and thoughts that align with those three different areas of love too. I love that. I really, really do. I think it's, it's so easily overlooked and then people tend to relate like positive self-talk or self-love as, you know, uh, what is that? What is that book that became a documentary? The secret, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to yeah. envision this and then it's just going to magically appear. And now there's a stigma that positive self-talk or anything related to it becomes this foodoo, foo-foo nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really mm -hmm. not nonsensical because, you know, it, it's, it's really tough to rewire your brain to believing that you are great that you are sincere, that you are a leader, that you are a strong, powerful person, you know, that you're a faithful servant, whatever the case may be. But just like anything else in life, with enough practice and with enough tension, just like you're working out, you don't just grow biceps just by doing it once. Mm -hmm. It takes time. There's an accumulation phase. You have to be able to break down the tissue and then provide it enough nutrients in order for it to rebuild and become stronger. Yep. So the way that I look at it is, is like, what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis to help rewire your brain in order to become the person that you already know you are? You just don't believe it yet. 
Yeah, that's good. Because in our culture, I think there's a lot of confusion about how we're supposed to view ourselves. And yeah. I'll tell you, you know, what's unhealthy is if we think we're the center of the universe. What's unhealthy is if we think we're better than other people. Amen. You know, what's unhealthy is all the racism we see in our cultures. You know, like, so sometimes our view of ourselves are so inflated that um, we don't listen to people. We don't care. We don't understand. We don't build bridges. We don't value people as, as equals, which everyone is. You know, we get really inflated and consumed with ourselves. And when someone's selfish, that's going to hurt all their relationships, you you know, and so inflated is one trap, but then on the other side, just as real is the deflated and the deflated is like, well, my gifts aren't that great. My story's not that important. You know, I, I'm not going to make a difference in this world. I'm not that loved or, you know, and the truth is everyone is wonderfully made. There's no accidents. And, and we are just to be thankful for, to know who we are and appreciate that, be grateful for it, you know, be humble. But uh, it's so important that we don't either think too big of ourselves or too little, but we've got like a right mind when we consider how we view ourselves. Because when you view yourself right, now you can have healthy relationships because you value people and you enter in, you're not tearing yourself down all the time and you don't have to be insecure and in trying to have image maintenance. I mean, just think of how many people have one story on the outside and a different story on the inside. Like they've got one front and they're trying to play the game and present one way. I mean, that happens so easily in social media too. It's a trap, but you know, it's just hard to be authentic. And, and that's what people are crying out for today is like, can we get some authenticity? And that's what I feel like the younger generation in our country is, is testing all the time and knowing like, is this authentic? Not is it slick, not is it, you know, canned, and not is it just impressive on the outside, but let me see the guts. Let me see the inside. Does it match up in what public, in what's private? Does that thing line up? Because if that doesn't line up, like, who wants it? <laughs> like, we, it's just a veneer. It's a facade and it's a game. And deep down, we know it, but sometimes we're insecure. So to find that security where we don't have to, you know, constantly be over promoting, over talking about ourselves, but at the same time, man, don't undersell the potential and the gifts you have and the opportunities and just how, how well you're put together. It's not an accident. And, and then walk in that. And, and then that's going to be a picture of health that we just really need in, in our land. I, yeah, 1000%. That, that, God, that was so well said. I uh, really appreciate that feedback. That, that, was, that was very, very important. Um, and, and people definitely need to hear it because we live in a society, unfortunately, where even though most people act like they're exuding some form of fabricated aesthetic confidence it's really not confidence and mm -hmm. it's and it's not the right process in order to achieve that confidence within themselves because there's just too much pressure in the world i mean i'll give you an example like one of the reasons why i dislike the kardashian family and whatever the case may be i'm sure you know you know what i'm talking about like the sure. Kim Kardashian. right so my biggest thing with that is that they've created this um this like this facade that that women like our wives have to be perfect right mm. with this with injections and the mm. the butt lifts and the face stuff and i can't like thousands of dollars spent on essentially so, as some form of prosthetically enhancing themselves to the point where they become a completely different version and now it's like this outer shell that isn't really relevant nor does it have relevance 
Mm. And it's not important because what's important is yeah. how you feel, how you're being treated and how you treat others. Yeah. I know that sounds cliche, but like, like I'll, I'll tell you right now, like, it, you know, uh, I, I tell my wife, she's the most beautiful person on the planet every single day, but here's the thing. She awesome. doesn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't believe it. Yeah. You know? Right. Say, you know, do I look fat in this or do I do this? And I'm like, I sincerely think you're gorgeous. Yeah. But you don't see that. So I'm not doing you any justice. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's right. And there's so many must messages and some of them are subtle. Some of them are very overt. Yes. For a lady in our culture. And, you know, I've got a little daughter and she's starting to hit that age where she's going to be going to middle school, you know, and I just see all the messages that are out there. I just want to protect her because I, I just want her to not fall into the patterns of the world and the pressures, especially around appearance. Cause like you say, uh, appearance becomes massive and, and yeah. yet it gets flipped because what's supposed to be massive is character. You know, what's supposed yeah. to be massive is on the inside, but now it's so easy to play that game on the outside and you get strokes. I mean, if you can play that game, well, you know, you get a lot more attention. You you got get a lot more compliments. You sometimes get more opportunities. Things go in different directions. And so people are desperate to succeed on that outside game. And then really what's going to bring contentment fulfillment is the inside game. And, uh, you, you know, it's like, Mo, man, I, I, I'll never, I mean, I look at what you're lifting and I'm like, that is awesome, you know, and you, you look at what I'm lifting and you're like, oh, that's a nice warm up set, you know, but, uh, but, you know, in terms of lifting, I'll never be who you are. Uh, now, maybe if I started, you know, protein shakes a few times a day and, you know, add a lot of, you know, some muscle mass and, you know, maybe I could get a little closer, but I'm good with who you are. That's who you are. And you're probably not going to save the ball and kind of soar to the upper corner and stop that shot, you know, because when I started lifting a lot as a goalkeeper, what I noticed is I just couldn't quite get to those shots in the corner because mm-hmm. I was adding lots of strength, but I, I, I wasn't as nimble and, and lost a little quickness. Now, I don't know. You still got a lot of quickness, but the point is like, instead of so often in our culture, we stare at other people, we envy, we have jealousy. We try to be someone we're not. And, and we run down that road instead of just being secure, realizing what our own gifts are, developing those and, and really being satisfied in that, because that's when we're going to find our true strength. And I'll tell you, the most important strengths are sometimes the ones that are not as valued in the culture. And the stuff that's not as important is what's really valued in the culture. Mm-hmm. And you just got to be careful not to fall into some of the patterns and traps uh, of the culture as well. Be aware. And then uh, you want to avoid those dangers because those can really tear you up on the inside and so much insecurity. If, if you're Brother, chasing something you can't thousand, get to thousand percent, you know, I, a yeah. quick little story, cause th- this is really important. So uh, my, my 20, almost 22 year old daughter isn't my blood daughter. My wife had her when she was very young and, um, She's been in my life now for about a decade. Yeah. And so she was 12 at the time. And uh, she, her biological father was never really in the picture. And when he was in the picture, you know, he, he had the mindset of like a 16 year old boy. Right. Mm-hmm. And this guy's probably like, I think six, seven years, my senior. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've fulfilled that role or I'm, I've been attempting to fulfill the role and I don't look at her any differently whatsoever. 
She's yep. she's my kid. Like she, awesome. She gets punished just like the rest of them. Sure, that's right. And uh, but she's got you know she's surrounded by a lot of a lot of like girls her age that are constantly battling with like depression and insecurity and blah mm-hmm. blah blah and so on and so forth. And so I'm like I'm starting to look, and then her her cousin as well. And I'm starting to like I see the pictures that they post and stuff, and you know like the, what they're wearing is slightly provocative. And I'm like, you know, they complain that they don't want this kind of attention, mm-hmm. that they're looking for somebody that is, that, that sees them as valuable. And, and they, they, they're remorseful and all this stuff. I'm like, do you understand that what they're putting out though is attracting the attention that they don't want? True. You know? So yeah. h- how many times do, do people in our society put something out in the world to try to attract something that they think that they want, but in reality, they don't want it. Yeah. They're just putting something out as form of content or an expression in order to fit the mold, so to speak. Right. Right. Because they want the likes and the shares and they want to feel like they're validated. But in reality, if we truly know what's deep down, what they truly want, it is nowhere near that. So Mm. like, how can you become, I guess like how, this is such a tough question that I'm trying to phrase, but, it's so difficult to to really encompass who you are and then share that with the world. Yeah, vulnerable. That's right. So, in, so instead, we we create this facade, which is what social media really was like, and still is to some extent. Like mm-hmm. it really is this facade, the shell of the version of ourselves that we think people are going to like. Yes, yes. And I think that has so many problems in every aspect of your life. Like, where else is that like? dripping to mm-hmm. how is that affecting your relationships how is that affecting mm-hmm. your friendships how is that affecting your work right you know right. yep like, we don't think about that that's so good it's so true you know it was easy for me you know making friends when i'm you know on the soccer team we're winning championships and i'm i'm smiling and you know we're going to parties and like that's one season of my life but the other season that next season that followed well, who wants to be friends with someone that's fighting for their life, that, you know, is struggling with depression big time, that is trying to battle through the side effects of the drug in that way. And then it's like, okay, well, who still is with me now? And, you know, I think deep down, of course, all of us want to be loved. I mean, that is just human, universal, every culture, every nation. And whether we put words on it, admit it or not, like, that's the truth. Like, we all want to be loved. And I think in terms of receiving love, where it gets tricky is that sometimes we either try to be someone we're not or kind of a partial version of ourselves. We try to put out the lovable part, hoping that we'll be loved in return. And what's really, really powerful is when someone knows who you are, really knows who you are, all your strengths, weaknesses, the ugly stuff, your true self, the way you laugh, the way you joke, you know, just knows everything, your sense of humor, your pain, your disappointment, they know it all, and they still love you. And man, that's the real love we're looking for. And sometimes we settle for kind of like the sucralose or the saccharine version of that love. And deep down, we know this isn't the real thing. Like, when you're in a relationship and you've got to look that certain way and you've got to bring it this way to keep the same friends or to fit in that click or whatever it is, you're playing the game. Uh, the game gets tiring because what we really want is to be ourselves and to be loved. And, you know, for me, that when I found that uh, in God, that he's the only one that knows 100% about me and he is the one who loves me the most 
and it's like, okay, that's how he feels about me. I mean, the creator, then that brought a security and a freedom for me. And, and now I can risk in relationships because I've got some security in who I am. Now I don't have to play the games the same way. And, you know, none of us want to our whole lives try to climb a ladder and then realize at the end of our lives, like we were climbing the wrong ladder, you know, whether it's that's our career, our relationships are right. And, and so when you can step off a ladder, that's not leading anywhere, and then you, you get in a solid, secure place. Now you start to see it different. And now you're not desperate. Now you're not scrambling. Now you're not trying to earn it. Now you're not chasing after the wrong thing or chasing after the right thing in the wrong way. And like you say, how you present, how you interact, that's going to be who you draw. And there's a lot of ways to get a shallow love. There's a lot of ways to get just a physical experience. You know, there's a lot of ways to do that, but ultimately that's going to leave us thirsty. And I just tell people, don't settle for that. There's so much more. There's something so much better. Are you kidding me? And uh, so, yeah, getting off that, that crazy ride and, and then starting to walk down a new path. It's like, oh, when you do that, you're like, why didn't I do this sooner? You know, that's when you know it's good. Cause it's like, man, I didn't, I didn't even think it, could it be this good? And then we're just like, yes, it is this good. Why didn't I do this sooner? That's when, you know, um, you nailed it. Thank you, brother. I love that, man. I could talk to you for hours. I feel like it's a great time, Mo. I like your style too. I like the way you bring it. <laughs> Ditto. Well, we might, we might have to do a uh, uh, part two here in the near future. Yeah. Or if no one actually listens and downloads this, then this is just one and done and we'll move on. And <laughs> you and I had a good time together, but it was just the two of us. <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh, before we end, I just wanted to ask a couple of uh, finalized questions here. Number one, they're, they're kind of cliche, but they're, they're interesting because they, they open a lot of, uh, uh, they, they give you kind of like a, a, a door, a gateway to the person that you're interviewing. And I found it very fascinating. So my question is, you personally, outside of your own understanding, outside of your own personal experience, who would you say has like influenced you the most in your life, um, particularly throughout the journey of the most struggle, which is, I think, is, mm. is very pivotal. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a guy, Jeff, that came into the pain uh, you know, guys that have influenced me, coaches have a huge influence. If you're out there and you're a coach, by the way, uh, you have a bigger platform and your voice is louder and stronger, I think, than you even realize. Uh, for me, I mean, coaches were massive in, in growing up. And, and Mo, I think you've got gifts as a coach. I mean, I think you're someone that's physical. And then also you're a thinker and uh, you just want to see people at their full potential. And so like you bring a lot of that, I think, speaking into people's lives, but you know, in the pain, oh, it's there. It's obvious. I mean, it just comes out of the, the podcast comes out of who you are. Uh, there's one guy named Jeff. And I think for me, it was vulnerability, letting him in during that time. And that, that year when I was fighting for my life and I let him in further and more than anyone else in terms of what I was thinking and feeling, uh, and, another guy, Matt too. I just let my guard down and I can't remember times where I've just cried. I mean, I wasn't crying growing up. It's just, it still doesn't come supernatural for me, but, um, man, there was a few times where I just broke down kind of in their presence 
and that they were still there. And, and it was that risk and that vulnerability and just their presence, the way they respond. I mean, obviously it felt safer on them and just the way they kind of built me up and helped me through that. So relationships are always a risk and uh, you're, you can't control the other person and, and to let people in is a risk. And even if it's new sometimes, or you've been burned in the past, like find those healthy people and then let them in. And uh, I'll just never forget when someone's been with you in your darkest time or, you know, different points in your life, like when someone's there at the hospital, you know, someone's there at the family tragedy, you lose your parents, you know, whatever that is, you just don't forget who was there and served you during those times. And so for me, uh, Jeff, a guy named Matt, I'll give those two guys a shout out. I love it. I so appreciate you giving me your time and and uh, this has been, actually, it's been kind of crazy just trying to get on the call with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we persevered, man. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the patience, man. Go to habitsofthefew.com.